Uh, I'll begin uh, this passage uh, this morning, and then Camper will pick it up, because uh, so it's quite the pregnant passage that we are digging into this morning. Uh, next week, we have the privilege of having Ben Robertson will be preaching. William and Mary shifted their uh, family weekend from the end of September to the end of October. Uh, it's nice of them to celebrate Reformation Day, so we can have the Reformed University Fellowship Campus Minister uh, to bring the word uh, to us next week. Our missions committee has in, invited Bob Davis to come back. He is a, uh, works with Mission of the World and particularly with their West African partnership. He will be with us on November the 5th. Camper will pick up and f- make sure that you remember whatever it is we started talking about today on the 12th. And then uh, we will break from uh, James until Camper decides otherwise. But, uh, uh, but this morning, we come to one of the most misunderstood and perhaps the one of the most challenging passages in all of uh, the New Testament in James uh, chapter 2. Uh, New Testament commenta- commentator uh, Douglas Moo writes this, this paragraph, and really this, this passage as a whole, uh, the end of chapter 2, this paragraph is the most theologically significant as well as controversial in the letter of James. And the controversy that this passage carries or that's associated with this passage has a a long history. And the reason for the controversy, the reason for the confusion is because of the apparent uh, difference of opinion between what James writes here and what Paul teaches about the doctrine of justification. Now the key word in that is apparent. My hope is that by the end of today, and then reaffirmed in a couple of weeks, we will recognize that there is no difference, there is no disagreement between James and Paul in what they are teaching. They're simply addressing uh, different issues, and they're addressing different audiences. One New Testament commentator writes this, capturing the difference of the emphasis. They, James and Paul, are not antagonists facing each other with crossed swords. Rather, they stand back to back, confronting different foes of the gospel. And so we can sort of see the, you know, a, a picture in our minds with those words uh, of, um, of ancient uh, soldiers standing back to back as they're fighting all of the, the, the enemies that are coming. Uh, and, and they are actually on the same side. J.I. Packer as he writes on this subject, gives us a a good illustration or an explanation of the different foes uh, or the the forms of false teachings uh, that both Paul and James are addressing. Packer writes this, Paul denounces the idea of salvation by dead works. James rejects salvation by dead faith or dead orthodoxy. Paul denies works as a basis for justification. James insists on works as an evidence of justification. And so as we come to this passage again, just so that there is no confusion, I will say what I said when we began this series in the first place, there is no contradiction between what James writes and what Paul writes. But understanding the perspective of both of them, helps us to gain an understanding of what true and genuine faith is and what it looks like. And that's our aim this morning. So if we will, let's come to the passage. 
begin our reading in verse 14. We'll continue through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of our God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, we do pray that your spirit would be at work within us, that you would be at work to strip away any of our pretenses, that you would prepare the soil of our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. We pray that we would be keenly tuned in to what James says. I pray that what I highlight and what I share would be in line with the truth that is revealed here and throughout all of Scripture. I pray that you would give us hearts and minds to receive, and that seed of truth would bear fruit in our lives, through this church, and through all of those who you have gathered here this morning. Lord, be at work in us, that you may be at work through us. This we pray with great confidence because it is in accord with your promise that you began a work, you continue the work, and you will complete the work in us. To you be all praise and glory, we pray in Christ. Amen. When we come to this passage, James doesn't leave us any doubt as to where he stands or what his position is. As a good attorney who is beginning to make his argument in his case, James jumps in and three times in this passage, he states his premise, not always in the exact same way, but close enough that there is no question as to what he means. In verse 17, we read these verses, we read these words, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then he picks up again in verse 20 and states it in a different way. Faith apart from works is useless. And then he finishes where he begins in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. 
And so it's quite clear that as we read through this passage and particularly highlight these pins, these, these points uh, that thread throughout, uh, that James is insisting that faith and works are inseparable. Uh, they can be distinguished from one another. And biblically speaking, faith precedes the good works that matter. Anybody can do good things, but works that are considered righteous and are pleasing to God, they must be propelled by faith, which means they must come subsequent to faith. But works and faith are never separated in a genuine faith. Where genuine faith exists, what James is telling us, works will inevitably be evident. New Testament commentator Doug Moo, who I cited a moment ago, says this, James is not arguing that, we, that, that works must be added to faith. His point, rather, is that genuine biblical faith will inevitably be characterized by works. In other words, what James is telling us and that we need to understand is it's not a matter of everybody here is, is ostensibly in agreement that we have our only hope is that Jesus died for us and we're trusting in that and so therefore we are saved. But now to that we must figure out a list of things that we are to do and to add faith to it. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is that the nature of genuine faith is that such that it will inevitably blossom. When you plant a seed in the ground, the seed that you plant will come up. It is the same. It comes up as whatever it was that went into the ground. The genuine seed is going to produce faith. That will be produce works. It's going to be evident. And then James begins his passage, that being his premise, he begins this, this discussion by introducing it with two rhetorical questions we, we see in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? That's the first question. The second question, can that faith save him? The second question. Now, the answer to both of these rhetorical questions is supposed to be, nope, and we're supposed to begin thinking about this whole subject and as James is posing these questions to us, he's challenging us to begin thinking about the validity or the value, the worth of so-called faith if it doesn't produce anything in our lives, if it doesn't show itself in some way. Now, to understand this, it's important that we lay, put our attention uh, to the word says here, because that's key to understanding James's argument. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith? The word says really shapes our understanding, because it's very easy for somebody to make the claim that they have faith, that they can embrace certain theological propositions and say, yeah, that makes sense to me. So, if you ask that person, are you a Christian? Do you believe? Do you have faith? The person says, sure, I believe. And, and they may say so with different degrees of passion and seeming certainty, but it's, it's easy for someone to make the statement that they have faith. Uh, and, and so the word says is significant to our understanding of the argument that James is planning to make here. 
It's also important that we take note of the word works, not just here in this passage, but as James uses it throughout, uh, in this verse, but as James uses it throughout the passage. Because if you think about it, James doesn't really define what that is and what that looks like. It's a very generally applied statement. And perhaps that reason is because the works in one person's life might look different than another person's life. Certainly, as the same seed is going to produce fruit, and it's going to produce obedience and a desire to be in God's presence, and that kind of fruit, that kind of a transformed life will likely look the same somewhat from one person to another. But the way that that faith moves and expresses itself is going to be as different as the people and the opportunities that we have. Living in one community, there are greater needs and different needs than there are in another community. And so as you have neighbors that have different needs and ways that you are to serve the people around, we're going to do different things in different places. James is not specifying a checklist of things that you should look at and say, yep, did that, did that, did that. James is not implying that there's some sort of a spiritual bucket list. He's simply making this principle, this statement, that where there is genuine faith, there will be a transformation of life, and the transformation of life will lead someone from thinking primarily about themselves, but to the glory of God and the benefit of the people who are around them. And if somebody is thinking about the benefit of the people who are around them, they will not only engage those people, but they will encourage and they will meet the needs as they arise in the lives of those people. And any of those things qualifies for what James is describing as works. It is the actions that our, our faith propels us to engage in. And so after James makes his opening statement through uh, these rhetorical questions, he, he moves on and, and he offers some illustrations, both practical and theological. The first one is a practical illustration, and we pick it up in verse 15. He says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so he's painting a picture here. One that would have been certainly very familiar to the original readers, who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution and because of persecution, they'd experienced rejection. And in their rejection, many of them had been forced into lives of poverty. So it would not have been uncommon for them when they gathered together for worship to see somebody who had been hit particularly hard to come in ragged, worn out clothing. Perhaps the kids coming on a cold day without a coat looking a bit emaciated because they hadn't eaten properly for that week. They just weren't able to afford it. It's not an uncommon thing 
even in our culture today with a number of people that are, are starving or who have needs, even if it's an unusual need in our community, it's not an unknown need in our community. And so it's quite possible in any church that somebody who is a believer, and that's the implication here, somebody who's part of your fellowship, somebody shows up to the church and they have inadequate clothing and they are not able to provide meals for their family. And the response of this particular person is to note and then in a pretense of spirituality as they're leaving that day saying, go, be warm, be fed, and doing nothing for them. I mean, imagine something like that was happening here and you knew that the circumstance of the family that had shown up, somebody who was not even new, somebody who was known, and their need was somewhat known, and one of our own number, that I, was to do that with those people, knowing that what's going on. What are your thoughts of that person? And James here is saying, through his question, what good is that? He's calling out the individual who is practically separating works from a pretense of faith. Because a person who would knowingly allow somebody to leave without necessary resources for them or for their family, particularly if they themselves had more than an adequate amount for their own. A statement of go, be well, be full, which means to be fed. He's just somebody who's wanting the attention, wanting to look as if they are a spiritual individual, wanting to use the things of God to puff up their own reputation. But in reality, we would all recognize the person by their lack of action really is speaking more loudly than the words that he's speaking and saying, I don't really care about you. What I want is for your need to be an opportunity for my glory, for people to look at me as if somehow... I am a caring, compassionate individual. It is an indicting and it's a damning picture that James here is painting, one that should grab the attention of everyone who is reading it, who is hearing it, who takes the time to think about what is actually being said here and imagining that happening in real time in our presence. And the pathetic nature of this guy's response James then just doesn't have to do much more but restate his previous question. What good is a faith like that? What benefit is there to anyone? Is that the kind of faith? Is that the result? Is that what God intended when he granted, they regenerated somebody and then granted them the gift of faith so that they would be saved from their own sin and then left here on earth for nothing? And James is pretty, pretty clear, clear on this, and he calls this guy out. Because genuine compassion acts and a claim of faith without corresponding compassion, which means to feel what the other person is experiencing, and engagement. A claim to care is useless. 
James seems to anticipate objection, and so he, he moves on, and we pick up again in verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And so James is engaging in an imaginary debate. But what the individual here is doing, the imaginary individual, is he's functionally separating faith and works. What he is essentially saying is that there are Two kinds of Christianity. Perhaps both would be valid, although more likely the person who would claim this thinks that whatever they have is the true measure of legitimate spirituality. Someone will say, you have faith, I have, have works, and so, but this person is making a distinction between faith and works. Not only a distinction, he is separating them and suggesting that it's legitimate to be able to have one or the other, and not recognizing that the necessity is that both faith and works must always uh, go together. And we see this all around us. I think because of this very thing is the reason that this passage is so confusing and has been so controversial for many years because many of our Christian traditions fall into different kinds of camps. There are those who say, well, the primary thing and the thing is, is faith and we are justified by God's grace through faith alone. And there are other who are saying, well, we have, look at the number of things that we are doing for the people who are in need and for the poor and how open and accepting we are of the broken and the, uh, the um, ragamuffins of the culture who is around us. And for whatever the reasons, we continue to hold ourselves into these two camps, protecting our positions rather than actually being formed by what the scripture says, the harmony that the apostle Paul and James actually are, are singing together uh, through their particular writings. Because all around us we see, and we are in a tradition that perpetuates this at times because we are, as part of the Presbyterian Church in America, very definitely part of the faith alone. And I'll let Camper untangle all the theological problems with that next time, but on justification, but that's our position. And it's not wrong. But sometimes we neglect what the reformers understood about this as they express it in a more pithily, more pithily than we are inclined to say is this, is that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But the grace that saves produces a faith that is never alone. And so it's been understood, but we short circuit. And so we argue about theological points in order to make sure that what we believe is accurate and correct. And that is a noble thing. In the right context, if it produces the right fruit, it actually is a legitimate work to dig into God's word so that we can encourage one another with the truth to move and to do the works that God's prepared for us to do, to understand how God is relating to us so that we don't feel that distance that so much of our own guilt leads to, that we are pointed back to the cross of Jesus Christ that has torn down the wall and brought us into that fellowship. Those are all necessary things that pure and clear and true theological understanding can produce but that's not all that it produces. 
And too often when we intoxicate ourselves with the theological truths, we just sit there in our drunken stupor contented with what we know and just assuming that what we know is benefiting somebody else but without really checking and without even engaging into other people's lives to see whether there is a practical benefit to our theological knowledge. We're satisfied with our theological debates rather than seeing people renewed in God's covenant and grace. And all along we look around and we look at other churches who are out and engaging and doing all sorts of things and creating, you know, social structures to benefit the poor and the marginalized, whose theology is, let's just say, at best questionable. But they really don't care what we think. Because they continue to look at the checklist of things that they are engaged in and what they are doing and saying, see, these are consistent with the things that Jesus has done and what Jesus would have us to do. And as long as we do these things, then we know that we are, well, we're more Christian than you. The red letters in my Bible tell me so. And so we live in a culture that, and and we become very comfortable with two different kinds of Christianity, although we say there is no only one kind, it's our kind. And so do they. And James is addressing that whole debate. He's addressing the whole American evangelical landscape of both the, the reformed evangelicals and the, uh, the progressive or liberals who say, you have, we have faith and they have works, or we have works and you have faith. And, and James is addressing the, that whole discussion and whole debate. And, and he says in a, in a very direct and, and yet... Um, impactful way show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works in other words while there's this tendency for us to put emphasis on one or the other and thinking that that itself is sufficient James says that there's an inseparability between faith and works the genuine faith produces good works that brings a transformed life, and that transformed life engages in the lives of other people in the community where God has planted us, that it would seek the flourishing of the neighbors and the people, whether they're believers or not. That good, true, genuine faith is evident by the transformed life and the things that go with that transformed life. James seems to totally reject this idea that there are two different expressions of Christianity, and he's not taking sides. He's saying, you're both wrong. And there he stands, arm in arm, with the Apostle Paul, who in Galatians 5, 6, very clearly says the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is faith that expresses itself through acts of love. They're singing the same song. The question that we as individuals and Christ's covenant as a church soon Pinewood as a church will have to answer is are we singing the same song that James and Paul are singing? Martin Luther 
who is noted for his understanding of the futility of trying to work your way into heaven. And for declaring that we are made right with God, we are justified by God's grace through faith and faith alone. It captures the marriage of faith and works or the essence of a genuine faith that produces works in his commentary to the Romans. Listen to what Luther writes. Faith is a divine work in us. It changes us. It makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different people in heart and spirit and in mind and powers, and it brings with it the Holy Spirit. So far, every good Reformed person is along with him. Here's where Luther gets personal. He says, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowing of it makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in faith. Hence, a man is ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything in love and praise to God who has shown him grace. And thus it is impossible to separate works from faith. Quite as impossible as to separate burning and shining from the fire. Beware, therefore, of your own false notions and of the idle talkers who would be wise enough to make decisions about faith and good works and yet are the greatest fools. Therefore, pray to God to work faith in you, else you will remain forever without faith, whatever you think or do. And so Luther is quite clear here is that faith is inseparable no matter what the temptation we might have. And he uses the illustration that faith without works is about as possible as a fire without a glow. Somebody who claims to have faith and yet doesn't have works, as I heard one person once say it is, kind of like somebody claiming to be an author, but then when you ask them what they've ever written, they tell you, well, nothing yet. If someone claims to be an author, there is a body of work or something that is there, whether it's been published or not, And usually we would even say, not just what have you written, but what have you published? If somebody's going to make the claim to be an author, there is an evidence of work in order to validate, to vindicate the claim. 
As I was thinking about it this week, one of the things that I realized is the challenge that we have is that we have this tendency to say, well, what's it supposed to look like? And then we copy what it looks like. And so I started thinking about what this faith and, and, and ultimately inevitably producing works looks like. And I started thinking, well, it's sort of probably like, you know, being pregnant. It's possible for someone to claim to be pregnant. As odd as it is, we have both men and women in our culture that are claiming to be pregnant. But no matter how intensely a man claims that he is pregnant, no matter how much he may sincerely believe that himself, time itself is going to prove whether that's true or not, and it will be not, because he can't be pregnant. Now, imagine that the man who's claiming that he's pregnant is, decides, okay, well, what is the evidence of somebody's pregnancy? Because when somebody is first pregnant, there's no external. In fact, you know, it goes you know, weeks and weeks and weeks until a couple is comfortable before often they even tell anybody in their family there is no external visible signs uh, that a woman is pregnant. But inevitably, there is a sign, sometimes more prominent than others, that there are signs of a genuine pregnancy. There is evidence of that pregnancy. So a man who claims that he's pregnant sincerely wants people to believe that, decides here's the answer and decides he's going to add a baby bump. Whether he does it artificially with a prosthetic baby bump or whether he does it through the long, hard work of drinking a whole lot of beers and getting the beer gut, you know, that's up to him. But no matter how he comes to arrive at that, the evidence itself is not real. And so it's very clear that what is, it becomes evident in time that no matter what the claim, there is nothing that is corresponding to that. And the same is true for faith. The person who claims to have faith will inevitably, not necessarily immediately, but inevitably demonstrate some transformation in life and will do certain works. The transformation in life itself may be different and may be at different paces than what we would ordinarily expect. And we need to be patient about that because we don't really often enough consider where the person started in their faith journey. We don't know the baggage they bring from their life experience or their families of origin. We don't know the emotional turmoils. We don't know the depth of the anxiety and the angst and the different things that God has got to deal with and then bring them through. And so they may have moved and grown tremendously, but it hasn't yet come to the surface. One of my favorite teachers is a former professor at Reformed Theological Seminary named Steve Brown, and he's known for his pithy and sometimes irreverent humor. And one of the things that he has said is that if you have a dog who plays chess, don't question his moves, just be glad that he's playing at all. And what he means by that is when you see something that is supernatural that is taking place, you know... Don't be so critical right away. Just be amazed. And that's really what we ought to be when we look in the mirror, and particularly when we look at one another, because God who began a work is doing that work. It's just not at the same pace. But inevitably, there will be some evidence, such as the dog is playing chess. But what is not true is that we can then say, okay, well, I have faith, and so now what I need to do is, well, I need to, I need to prove it, so I need to add this. The person who is genuinely pregnant doesn't need to prove it. It becomes evident. The person who is an author doesn't need to prove it. You can Google it. The person who has faith doesn't need to 
consciously act, and that's what Luther is saying. He's saying the person who generally has faith doesn't sit there and think, okay, what are the works I need to do? He's already doing them because the faith that he has is in a God who has loved him with such a love that freed him from himself or herself and then has propelled them to love their neighbors with the same love with which they have received. And even without thinking about it, they are responding with compassion and love and meeting the needs of the people who are around them. That doesn't mean that we don't think and we don't strategize about what are the needs around us that are getting neglected. But it means inevitable faith. It's inevitable that faith will be at work within the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. And one of the things I'm going to wrap up with this is that it's important that we understand is this, is that this is not a mere theological argument. James doesn't have any use for mere theological arguments. One of the arguments that he has here is, is a theological argument, the most pure theological argument. is so, so you believe that God is one, which can be interpreted as one of two things or both. It could be interpreted that you believe there's only one God or that you believe in the Trinity. And James says, you do well. In other words, it's good to believe sound orthodox truth. And then he points out, and even demons believe that. And it doesn't do them any good. And James' whole point is emphasized in the repeated question, what good is that? What benefit can such a faith save a person? A faith that is apart from works. And over and over, the implicit answer is no. And the reason that matters is because there are many people sitting in churches, perhaps particularly in our kinds of churches, who have tremendous theological knowledge or just some theological knowledge, and they've answered the right questions. They believe that God is one. They believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. They believe that he died and he rose again, and therefore they live with assurance of salvation simply because they have believed these theological and uh, uh, principles to which James would say, great, it is good to believe those things, but the demons believe all those. What good is it? Does that faith save? There is no salvation apart from those truths. But James's point is that this is not just about theological or active. It is about a genuine faith that saves. And so there's assurance. There's assurance in our tribes of the theological promise. There's assurance in the progressive tribes of the number of activities somebody is engaged in. And James is saying, no. It is the faith that produces works that confirm the faith in the first place. That is the faith by which anyone who is genuinely saved has been saved. And so I say this because we all need to hear that and ask ourselves, what is the basis of my assurance? Do I see any evidences of transformation in my life from where I was when I began to where I am now? Not, am I better than the person sitting next to me? But is there any difference in the way my orientation toward God, my, my, the way in my life, has there been any, any movement whatsoever? And in what way is that evident in the lives of the people who are around me, whether those who are most close to me or those who just live in proximity to me? Is there any evidence of that that would confirm the faith that I have? We need to have the assurance of the evidences of genuine faith for our own sake. 
but also for the sake of those who are around us, because I would suspect that there would be nobody here that is, has been a Christian for any length of time that doesn't know somebody in their life, whether a friend or a family member or a coworker or a fellow student or a former classmate, someone who has at one point or another made this profession of faith in their life and then are living on this assurance because they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they made a statement, they believed a theological proposition, they've gone on a mission trip, whatever it is, but they are basing their assurance of salvation on one of those things. And we should hear James saying, can that faith save them? The answer is no. And we need to be praying for them. And we need to find opportunities to share with them the truths of the gospel. Because the faith that saves is a holistic faith that saves us within, but produces evidence from without that we would not only praise God with our lips, but that God would be praised because of our lives. This is the faith of Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks to you for this word, hard as it is, but beautiful as it will be. And pray that you would be at work within us to open our eyes first to our own hearts and lives and evidence of how faith produces works. An ability to repent where we have been more selfish than selfless. And to rejoice that you who began the work are at work within us. Not only eyes to see ourselves, but hearts to love those who are around us who may be confused and who live this life with a false assurance. Lord, may we not condemn them, but may we see you at work within them and using even us to encourage them, even as James is encouraging the believers scattered throughout the Roman Empire and encouraging us today. Lord, be at work, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. We pray this in all things in Christ. Amen.